Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. This evening on Arts Tonight, the Baroque in painting, words and music. So if you think of somebody like Caravaggio telling the story in a very dramatic and a emotive way, this is what a lot of Baroque art is about. It's about expressing emotion. Well, I always loved the repertoire of uh, Baroque music, but I remember distinctly when I heard period performance recordings, there was something in the sound that really did speak to me. I maintain strong links with trad music, as you might be able to hear whenever my Baroque mannerisms <laughs> burst out of them at the end of the piece where it gets a bit wild. With a focus on the Baroque Arts Tonight, invited Baroque-Irish violinist Claire Duff into studio to perform a brand new composition by contemporary composer Sean Doherty, who shares a passion for music of the period. But first, I visited a busy National Gallery of Ireland and an exhibition running there entitled Passion and Persuasion, Images of Baroque Saints, which is proving very popular with visitors. There I met with Adrian Laharville, senior curator at the National Gallery, and art historian Audrey Nichols, co-curators of the exhibition. Amongst the stories associated with the art and books on display are those relating to their acquisition by the gallery, the lives of the saints depicted in the exhibition, as well as the symbolism of so much of the work on display. I asked Audrey to shed some light on the Baroque period the exhibition represents. Well, these works really do represent a period that's very interesting because Protestants and Catholics had very different ideas about the representation of saints. And this really went back to doctrinal differences that emerged after the Protestant Reformation. So Protestants felt that the veneration or worship of saints was in fact idolatrous. And this led to waves of iconoclasm, particularly in Northern Europe, where people went out and destroyed paintings and statues that they felt were superstitious and no longer had a place in Christian practice. In response to the Protestant Reformation on behalf of the Catholics was the Counter-Reformation. And they established the Council of Trent, which ran from 1545 to 1563. And initially the idea was that they would discuss the differences in theology and doctrine and that perhaps the two groups would pull back together. But in fact what happened was they went in two very different directions and even more embedded in their particular beliefs. 1563 was when art was discussed and the issues around whether or not it was appropriate to continue to venerate saints was raised because Protestants had criticised some religious images as no longer being uh, suitable or appropriate, that they were lacking decorum. So in the end it was decided that Catholics would continue to venerate saints and in so doing that they would continue to, to include them in their churches and in their, you know, their personal practice as well. So there was a move to return to a more simplified style. So if you think of somebody like Caravaggio, where you get the main figures telling the story in a very dramatic and a emotive way, and this is what a lot of Baroque art is about. It's about expressing emotion. It's about moving away from the more sedate work of the Renaissance. So when we think of Baroque art, it's often about energy and exuberance and also uh, being decorative. And sometimes Baroque art, and particularly after the 17th century, Century, which is the main era that's associated with Baroque art, it's thought of in a very poor light. And that can be sometimes because it's deemed to be overly ornate. So if you think of something like an artist like Bernini or Rubens, but then when you think about an artist like Caravaggio or Anibale Caracci, it's a much more pared down and 
and sort of controlled kind of art, but always you're getting through facial expression, bodily gesture, and the use of psychology in art. And this relates to the books that are here in this exhibition. Mm. The first display case, there are two books that have been lent to us from Marsh's Library, and the other bookcase, there are two books that have been lent to us from the Jesuit Library. In the first display case, we have a, a little small book, and it's the Spiritual Exercises, which was written by Ignatius Loyola. Whose spirit, it has to be said, informs a great deal of, of the work here, I think. Yes, and it's not that Ignatius Loyola wrote specifically and said artists should do this or artists should do that. What he did was he described in the Spiritual Exercises a form of meditation, And the form of meditation involved using all of your five senses to imagine, say, for example, if you were meditating on hell, well, you would imagine that you could hear the people screaming, that you could smell the sulfur, feel the heat of the flames. So you completely immersed yourself in what he referred to as a composition of place. So you can see how this is firing the imagination to think and imagine visually. He was a mystic himself, and he was very much concerned with using the body and the mind to come closer to God. And this is very different from the way Protestants were thinking at the time because they were thinking that the body was something that was quite separate from the mind and that the intellect was about, you know, it was a rational reasoning. And it was a really popular book and you can still get it today, it's still in print today. And it wasn't just for Jesuits to to perform these exercises, it was also for lay people. So it was open to everybody uh, to become involved in it. And the the other book that's there um, is the illustrated gospels by Jerome Nadal and Jerome Nadal was a companion of Ignatius Loyola and Ignatius asked him to compile a spiritual uh, illustrated spiritual gospel now he didn't do the prince himself he uh, commissioned people to make the engravings and it's an absolutely beautiful book there's 153 engravings in the book so we've opened it on the taking of Christ because that linked back to the Jesuits to Caravaggio the taking of Christ it might not have been the very first time it was done but certainly it was done in a very successful way in that when you look at the image say for example where Christ is being taken away there's the letter A above his head and then there's a key below and it in Latin it then is written you know Christ is being taken away the image takes up most of the page and there's very little script because this was about teaching people through imagery mm. and these books travelled with the Jesuits right out across the world really because they were in Asia, they were in South America they were in Canada and other artists then used these prints as the basis and inspiration for paintings that they that they then produced The two books here on the on, in the first display case they're known as the Actus Sanctorum and they are, which translates as the Acts of the Saints and when uh, Roswide went to, uh, who was the instigator of the project, he went to see the uh, Jesuit Cardinal Bellarmine in Rome and he said, I have this idea about producing um, a, you know, a new book on the lives of the saints. And the reason that had come about was because there had been a criticism that previous books on saints were in fact apocryphal, so they were false. So if you think of the most famous one, which is the Golden Legend by uh, Jacobo de Varenia, and written in the 13th century, and this book was the basis for artists you know, and patrons when they wanted to uh, make paintings about saints or their related narrative. But it was a lot of it was made up, and that was the problem. Uh, the Jesuits decided to address this, and they decided that the way to do it was to go back to the beginning, go back to the historical sources, and as much as possible to provide 
a true aspect, as, as close to the truth as they knew um, about the various saints. So when Roswell went to see the Cardinal in Rome, he said, this man thinks he's going to live for 200 years because this is going to be an enormous project. And it did turn out to be an enormous project. So the very first book was published in 1643. And we have a book here that is a 1643 edition. And it's the frontispiece of January. So each month was taken, started with January, and all the saints that had their feast days in January, they started with them, and so on and so on. So there's 68 volumes in total. Uh, The last one wasn't finished until 1940, so it was very prescient. It did take, you know, it was a huge project. And when Roswell died, he passed it on to Jean Boland, another Jesuit, who then passed it on to the next Jesuit scholar, and so on and so on. So there's this wonderful continuity Uh, throughout the project, but also very much a rigorous academic discipline applied to the production of these books. And what we have, the second book, is open on St. Peter. So on the right-hand side, we have the text of St. Peter, and on the left, we have, up in the corner, we have a little, uh, you know, what they imagine Peter looked like, uh, holding his little set of keys, and that's how we recognise him through his symbol. Adrian, the the title of the exhibition, Passion and Persuasion, uh, you know, we can see the passion in the paintings, but where does that quality of, of persuasion come into it? Persuasion is actually the other interesting factor here because when one thinks of painting of this period, um, one looks at really generally in art terms, and it's probably the first time people have seriously been looking at the influence of the Jesuits, um, how they used the, the thought process to persuade people. Equally important probably was the the Jesuit tradition of theatre, which you might associate with them, but in their schools from the mid-16th century, they insisted on um, dramas taking place, uh, quite sensibly teach oratory, self-discipline, they even included dance, and by the early Baroque period where uh, these paintings sit, and um, we have, uh, for instance, St. Alexis here, who was the star, literally, of the first sacred opera by Stefano Landi in 1632. Um, Alexis, not a well-known saint perhaps outside Rome, but is long venerated back to the early Middle Ages. And a rather remarkable story of being, living in his own house for 17 years, unknown as a beggar, and then being discovered by a servant boy, as you see in the painting. Returning home, having, been, having lived abroad, and his family not knowing who he was, and dying uh, almost destitute uh, within. And that great moment where the, the servant recognised him in this candlelight, this centred, central light in the painting. It's a beautiful painting. Um, it's very much at the heart of the collection because um, this is how the gallery started in the uh, 1850s, buying um, Baroque paintings. And um, you have to remember now, although today these artists are sought after, 50 years ago nobody um, really took this seriously. It had been a totally forgotten era. What we've done in the exhibition, I think, is to try and show the different facets. Um, there's the, the horror side. You can see, for instance, in the very moving Luca Giordano, um, where you have the sagging body of St. Sebastian. He's been shot with arrows, but actually he's not dead. St. Irene discovers him, nurses him back to, to health, um, and then he goes on and is, is finally martyred. And when you think of the Renaissance, where it was a, a vehicle to allow the perfection of the human body to be shown as a nude in art here you see all the sort of suffering of the of the form that was one of the early donations in fact from the, the duke of leinster and uh, alongside it uh, there's a mattia preti um, showing the very familiar story of saint john being executed and holding here you can see his his cross and in in these paintings you also get this reflection of the 
the drama of the period. Um, when you visit Roman churches and you see the, the sculpture of Benini or the sort of the painted fresco decoration, um, as within sort of 20, 30 years, the, this sort of very theatrical side comes to the fore, and you can see that emerging in these pictures. And that's another way of persuading and um, engaging the, the viewer. But the one picture no one is going to overlook is the wall-sized one of the veneration of the Eucharist by Jakob Jordanes, which is right in the centre. Let's go over and, and, and have a look at that. I mean, as you say, it does take up uh, most of the back wall of, of uh, the gallery we're in. For the point of view of the exhibition, it's an incredible assemblage of the, the great doctor saints of the church with um, additional saints, St. Sebastian's there, St. Rosalie at, at the top, Peter and Paul, and then this intriguing figure um, in the centre, which has caused great debate about, about what she represents. Yes, um, what we see here is an allegory, and the painting is titled The Veneration of the Eucharist. And at the time, this was really a burning issue. Again, it comes down to differences between the old faith and the new faith. And the old faith continued to believe that during the sacrament of the Mass, when the, the bread and wine of the sacrament occurred on the altar, that it transformed into the actual body and blood of Christ. Whereas Protestants believed that really it was a memory of a sacrifice rather than something that was actually being reenacted. And this kind of goes back to the idea of the mystic and the supernatural and the divine still occurring within Catholicism and Protestants moving away from that. So in this work, and it's a, we reckon it was probably a, an altarpiece that was perhaps, we don't know for what church, but may have been to replace one of the altarpieces that had been destroyed during the iconoclastic period. And that would make a lot of sense that this kind of subject matter would be the focus, the veneration of the Eucharist. And what we can see is at the very top, there's the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And below that, you have this beautiful goddess-like figure, possibly a personification of the church. And in her hands, she's holding what's known as a monstrance. So it's a chalice that has clear glass. And inside it, you can see the host. Uh, and this went back again to the Council of Trent, where they had said that the host was something that should be displayed on the altar at all times. And there were these very lengthy devotional prayers that people would sit in front and, and pray. And she's sitting on this lion. It's a very strange uh, composition. And the lion may perhaps be the symbol of the Habsburg family who were ruling uh, Flanders at that time. It would make a lot of sense that that would be the case. And he's standing on a rock, and that might be a reference to St. Peter and Christ saying, you know, this is the rock of my church. Below that, we have a really beautiful rendition of the infant Christ. And he's sitting on this giant orb. This orb sort of relates back to a theme that it, uh, began in North the European painting, which was of the Salvador Mundi, you know, the uh, saviour of the world. And normally you would see the adult Christ with an orb in one hand and his right hand raised in benediction. But in this we see this beautiful infant Christ uh, perched on this enormous orb. He's holding in his hand a red heart and it's flaming. Uh, and it's thought that this may be an attribute of St. Augustine, who also appears in the painting. So we have at the bottom of the painting, in the front register, if you like, we have the four doctors of the church, Augustine, Jerome, Gregory, and Ambrose. And then behind the martyrs, we have the martyr saints. The concept that was being uh, communicated here may have been that because the doctors of the church wrote, you know, the, the books, the, the writings, they're what the practice of religion is based upon, and behind them, the martyr saints were the people who gave up their lives. They sacrificed their lives for those beliefs. And this was a time when, in the 17th century, people were being martyred for their beliefs but on both sides of the faith. So it would have been very relevant for that audience to look at this, to emulate the example of the 
older martyrs, the, the Christian tradition of having martyrs, and then realising that there were new martyrs as well being made at the same time. The line can also be a symbol of resurrection. So we have Christ and his symbol again on his, uh, his right-hand shoulder. He has the symbol of the cross, so the symbol of the passion. So there's an awful lot going on in this painting. It's never been in this wing before. It's always been up in the Baroque room. So it's been quite high up. And we had difficulty lighting such a large work, you know, because of its sheer size and in this space. And what's amazing is that when this was acquired, um, it cost all of £84. Um, just across the room, you can see a tiny little painting by Murillo of infants and Johns, or charming little chubby child, £400 at the time. So there's a very different sort of appreciation. Uh, in the, the, the painting, of course, people have different reactions, and uh, many people will just be drawn perhaps to the, the wonderful embroideries of the, the, of the vestments. Um, or some could have a more personal reaction. Um, some people may re- remember that back in 1988, um, the, the, the gallery commissioned Paul Durkin, the poet, to do a series of poems reflecting uh, his reaction to, to works in the collection. And um, one of them is titled The Veneration of the Eucharist. It's complex poem because it's about his own personal relations, but he does become very visual in the, the second section. And I think there's a rather nice quote that one can give that, I notice in the doorway a lion of mature years with a young woman sitting side staple, whom I instantly recognize, but whose name I cannot remember. She's holding up the Eucharist in a monstrance. Her white dress is cut low, giving full rein to the champagne ponies of her breasts, a sturdy pair of Connemara ponies. <laughs> you see, I, everyone does see things differently, and the more, the more you look, the more you see. And a wonderful painting, the other side, the, 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 the Eucharist is flanked by, on the one side by uh, St. Teresa of Avila, and the other side by this rather splendid Mary Magdalene. Yeah, and it's by an artist called Domenichino. And Domenichino was very much uh, a follower of Anibale Caracci. So in 17th century Rome, you had two main artistic trends, one of them being Caravaggio and the other being the Caracci. And Anibale Caracci went to Rome and Domenichino followed him down there. And this work by him shows Mary Magdalene. She's, she's very voluptuous. She's very beautiful. And she's leaning on a sarcophagus. And in the left-hand corner, you can see the dawn is breaking. And this relates back to the gospel story where Mary Magdalene went to the tomb at daybreak and discovered the tomb empty. And so we also see on top of the sarcophagus is her little jar of ointment, another reason that we know it's Mary Magdalene, that and her beautiful hair and her general appearance. And she looks very wealthy, she looks very voluptuous and that's also because it's a reference back to her previous life because Mary Magdalene is associated with prostitution and would have been in the 17th century, we know now that that wasn't the case in the 6th century Pope Gregory the Great, to settle an argument, a discussion and a debate about exactly who she was, decided that he would just amalgamate a number of unnamed women in the Bible and uh, he chose the unnamed Luke, the sinner who cleaned Christ's feet with the perfume, the ointments, and then dried his feet with her hair. But there was another woman who was from the town of Magdala, and she had seven demons driven out of her. And Magdala was a town that was associated with harlots, and so this is where the idea of her association with prostitution came. But she was really popular. I mean, she's always been popular throughout uh, Western art, Christian art, but she was particularly popular during the Counter-Reformation because she was a penitent saint, and she's the essential penitent saint. And whereas the Virgin Mary is 
it's just quite a hard act to follow really whereas Mary Magdalene is someone that we can identify with more and it was also you know a reason why you could have a very attractive penitent uh, on your wall with justification you you know there was a reason why you could say she looked like this and get away with it and she is very much the poster girl for this the whole exhibition and I think deservedly so it's a particularly good work by Domenichino Peter's Denial of Christ is also a very interesting painting and I, I think it, it has really captured people's imaginations. Yes, it's a very dramatic moment where for the third time he denies Christ and suddenly remembers, of course, that this has been predicted by Christ himself. Another of the paintings that was thought by Caravaggio in the past and in 1971, um, this strange name, uh, literally translated, means the, um, the lodger of Saraceni, Carlo Saraceni, a very important um, 17th century artist in Rome. And this lodger, we believe, was probably French and may explain how part of the influence of Caravaggio was taken northwards. And on, from a Short, uh, from a short career of the few works, um, he created this very Caravaggesque style. But again, like the other paintings, um, very immediate. We'd like to reassure people you don't need a degree in theology to enjoy the exhibition. It is very, very tactile, very colourful. And um, I think some people it's nice because they're used to certain works in, in the gallery. Obviously, maybe people would know the great Irish collection and certain Dutch paintings and, and others. But this particular area of the Italian collection, which is is the second largest part of the gallery's holdings, is not so familiar. And I think one does get the sense, particularly when you put so many um, pictures together in one room, of being almost overwhelmed when you come in. And that was part of the impact that was intended. If you go around the Baroque churches of Rome, that was certainly what they intended you to feel. Again and again, when we're doing internal exhibitions like this you find things you just didn't expect are here and um, next summer um, when the entire collection is rehung you really see it again in, in all its splendour Adrian Le Harville and Audrey Nichols, co-curators of Passion and Persuasion, Images of Baroque Saints, an exhibition of paintings and books running at the National Gallery of Ireland until the 31st of May with its focus on the Baroque arts tonight, invited Baroque violinist Claire Duff into studio to perform two pieces especially composed for the Baroque violin and which have formed part of the 2015 Strong Series programme hosted by the Irish Composers Collective. Sean Doherty, a composer of one of the two pieces Claire will perform, is also joining me. To begin with, could I, could I ask each of you what Baroque means in in musical terms. I mean, Claire, I know that you are involved with the uh, Baroque Orchestra of Ireland and then at a European level as well. So for you, when you think of Baroque music, is how do you define it? Well, Baroque music is generally a term used for music in Western classical music from 1600 to 1750. And it was a very exciting period in musical history because it was really the birth of the opera and it was also the birth of the violin. There were medieval fiddles and Renaissance fiddles, but the violin itself hadn't really been standardised until Baroque time. And this was the beginning of new violin repertoire when the instrument was sort of emancipated from traditionally just 
accompanying voices in church or used in taverns uh, to accompany dance music, suddenly composers started taking an interest in composing music specifically for the violin. And so the 1600, the beginning of of, uh, Baroque violin repertoire is very exciting because it's very experimental. There are sort of no rules, no forms set. um, Nothing was actually sort of decided yet. So I love playing music from that era, like Marini, uh, Castello, Schmelzer, and then Bieber that I play. He was sort of the pinnacle of that experimental time, which is can, can be called Stilus Fantasticus. It's very elaborate and ornate. What what drew you to to playing Baroque music? Well, I always loved the repertoire of uh, Baroque music, but I remember distinctly when I heard period performance recordings, there was something in the sound that really did speak to me. And then when I was a student in Trinity, the Parley of Instruments came over and gave one week music course. And it was my first time to pick up a violin, a Baroque violin and play it. And straight away, sort of from day one, I thought this is exactly what I wanted to do. There's something about playing on the instrument for which the composer intended the music to be played. Suddenly all this Brock repertoire, which I had loved before, made more sense when I was playing on the right instrument. So it just sort of grew from there. Sean, was it similar for you in, in coming into classical music and again hearing Baroque? Was there, was there something in, in the music that, that appealed to something in you? I mean, what, what drew you into that world? Yes, well, I assume that the incredible signs just appeal to everyone in the same way as they appeal to me, the repertoire from the Brock era. Um, I think that we, should, we shouldn't get hung up in the periodization of the Brock era. In 1750, no one really knew who Bach was or cared that he had died. But what I love is the repertoire there, Bach and Telemann. And later on, we're going to hear the fantastic Bieber Passacaglia. Your own journey. I mean, I know that, that you, I suppose, took an unusual route, maybe, into classical music. I mean, starting with traditional music and uh, fiddle music from, from Donegal thrown into that mix. Yes, yeah. I started off as a trad fiddle player, but then classical music kind of took over when I was about 16. But I still uh, maintain strong links with trad music, as you might be able to hear in the piece itself whenever my um, kind of Baroque mannerisms <laughs> burst out of them at the end of the piece where it gets a bit wild. This is a piece that you've composed, which we'll hear in a while. You've also then uh, been acknowledging, I suppose, and honouring some of those links to uh, traditional music in a new piece you've done for the uh, West Cork Chamber Festival. Yes, um, one of my pieces it will open the West Cork Chamber Music Festival um, this summer. It was commissioned by the Vanbrugh Quartet and it'll be uh, on the opening concert in Bantry House. That piece is written in memory of my fiddle teacher, Jamesy Byrne, who was a, a Donegal fiddle playing icon and he sadly died in 2008. And so some of the tunes that he carried, we'll, you'll hear yes, of in yes, your piece. Yes, um, two of the tunes that I learned from him, they're kind of like the, the cake dipped in tea was to Proust. They are what, what bring me back to my childhood. What, what are those two tunes? They're called um, Anlondu and The Devil's Dream. And the piece is subtitled The Devil's Dream. Great titles, as, as so often in, in Irish music. Uh, Claire, the Baroque um, violin, I suppose, a, a very particular instrument. What distinguishes it from, from other instruments? Well, the main differences are that we first of all play on pure gut strings. Um, so the top three strings, the E, A and D, are just pure sheep's gut not covered in anything and the G string is a gut string covered in metal and uh, that produces a particular 
literally gutsy sound and I find it um, very satisfying because I find it, it produces a broad range of colours and timbres. The neck is actually a little bit different. The angle of the neck, the length of the fingerboard is different. There's a sort of thinner base bar. Um, it basically is designed to sort of resonate naturally. Um, later on, the, the violin progressed and transitioned into what would be called a sort of standard modern violin in order for it to project to the for the modern concert hall. Um, so this violin resonates beautifully in churches and small venues. It wouldn't have the same power of a huge concert hall. That's why the changes were made. But um, if you come back to playing on a Baroque violin, there's basically a little bit less tension, it's more resonant. Um, we don't play with a, a shoulder rest or a chin rest because they weren't invented at that time. And uh, not having all of those things cling to the violin actually helps the violin to resonate more freely. If, if, uh, if a shoulder rest is clamped on, that sort of deadens a bit of the resonance. Another big distinguishing feature is uh, the different bows. Uh, I actually play on several different bows depending on the repertoire I'm, I'm playing. So if I'm playing early 17th century repertoire, I'll play on a small smaller, shorter bow, which is more arched. And the bow itself, the wood thins out as coming up to the tip. Uh, so we've got an elegant tip. So it means that when you're playing at the beginning of a note, the weight is in the heel of the bow. So you've got a strong beginning and it lightens off towards the end of the stroke. So there's an inequality between the strokes. The down stroke is sort of a strong stroke and the up stroke is a weak stroke. Inequality in general was actually favoured at that time in that you can you can use it to be very articulate and um, enjoy different articulation. Then over time, the bow changed uh, to become more legato and more sustaining and again, more powerful. Um, so I, I love playing on the short light bows for the early uh, music where there's lots of florid uh, passage work and lots of fast, flighty, uh, separate notes. And again, you can produce more nuances. If, let's say, for a 18th century bow, Bach and Telemann, it can still, and Corelli, it can still sing because it's a slightly longer bow, but you can produce more subtle shades and more subtle degrees of articulation than with a modern bow. Are there many Baroque violins being made these times, do you know? I think more and more uh, uh, the whole sort of early music or historical performance movement started off as a kind of niche adventure, really, for a few people who were interested. And then it really grew to most people being open to the fact that, again, it is actually uh, there's a lot of value in knowing how the composer would have originally wanted the music to sound. So now a lot of people who play in symphony orchestras are also interested in playing on Baroque bows or sometimes having their own Baroque instrument and a lot of uh, very well-known performers will also have also experimented with a Baroque bow or Baroque instrument so um, more and more are being uh, made. Uh, Sometimes you can buy an old a violin that was made in the 18th century that was modernised and you can get it re-barocked as such. Um, so, or you can buy um, an instrument that's made specifically for you with, with the, all the Baroque features on it. Where did you get your own violin? My violin is um, actually only three and a half years old. Um, so I did have, I, I do have another violin that's from 1720 from Antwerp. But this violin I commissioned to be made uh, by Stefan von Baer, who is a German who lives in Paris. He has based the neck on a Stradivarius violin, which still has the original Baroque neck. And the main design of the, of the violin is based on a Galliano violin. Claire, you're leader of the Irish Baroque Orchestra. Tell me a little bit about that and, and, and what they're doing at the moment. 
it's a wonderful group. Uh, it's it's got uh, really dynamic players, experts in the field of Baroque performance. Um, and we come together around maybe 10 times a year. Um, I kind of challenge ourselves as, as an orchestra. Uh, we do a January masterwork series um, where within a space of a week, we do three different concerts, all with a, a certain theme, but all different programmes. And uh, it's a lot of repertoire to get through and it's quite intense, but the audience love the sort of intense journey. And in March, we just did a beautiful chamber tour uh, of 17th century music. So it was just um, two violins and um, viola and cello and harpsichord and organ and uh, um, and the next thing that we're coming up with is um, this new festival, Music Town, we're featuring as part of that. We're doing, um, with Opera Theatre Company, we're doing a performance of Handel's Il Triunfo del Tempo e del Disingano, The Triumph of Time and Disillusionment. And we're not actually too sure if this has been performed in recent times in Ireland at all. It's an absolutely beautiful opera and uh, it'll be performed in Christchurch Cathedral on Friday the 10th of April and John Butt will be directing, I will be leading and uh, we have soprano Kim Sheehan, mezzo-soprano Sharon Carty, alto Alison Browner and tenor Simon Bode. Tell me about the Irish Composers Collective and, and then your own links to it. Well the Irish Composers Collective is a, f- a wonderful organisation of Irish composers who all work together and provide opportunities to have their pieces performed. Um, My link was forged when um, Sebastian Adams heard me perform a piece by Karen Power that I commissioned her to compose for me through an Arts Council grant in 2013. And I performed it at a Kaleidoscope concert alongside the Bieber that you'll hear. And he loved this idea of of a piece being composed for a Brock violin and it being juxtaposed with with a original Baroque piece so uh, he approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in doing a concert with new compositions composed for for me and then that idea developed into the Strong series where it incorporates different violinists uh, specialising in traditional Irish or gypsy or the standard classical Um, so it sort of grew from there. You're going to play two pieces for us. Um, Would you introduce the first piece and it's, it's a piece that I think means a lot to you. Yes, I particularly love this Passacaglia. It's found in a manuscript. I have a facsimile of the man- original manuscript, which is also appears the mystery sonatas. Each of the sonatas is prefaced by a small copper engraving depicting one of the 15 mysteries of the rosary. Those 15 sonatas all have accompaniment with continuo instruments. The Passacaglia at the end is for solo violin and it, this is headed by an ink drawing of a guardian angel holding the hand of a child. And all 16 images can be found in the form of paintings on the walls of the rooms um, of a confraternity in 17th century Salzburg. And it's possible that Bieber performed them there for his patron Maximilian Gandalf because he uh, dedicated these manuscripts to Max. Tell us what we should listen out for uh, as you play. In this piece, I'll just play, it's based on a passacaglia and a passacaglia has repeated bass part and normally um, it would be accompanied. So normally I would have a viola da gamba or harpsichord or cello or lute playing the bass part and repeating it over and over. And on top of that, the violin 
does variations and embellishments and it can become more and more ornate. And in the Baroque time, it would be very normal to just improvise over a a repeated ground bass. This is like, in a way, a written out improvisation. I'll just play for you the four notes um, of this ground bass. That's all it is. It's just four notes and Bieber manages to keep that going the whole time, even though I have to do the two parts, the bass and the the treble. And um, so it's it's very creative and imaginative. At one stage, she jumps up to the higher register that the the bass part becomes the the top part. Okay, Um, we'll we'll listen out for, for all that.
Bebus Pascalia from the Mystery Sonatas played there by Claire Duff. Sean Doherty, uh, what was your intention behind the composition of the piece we'd hear next in a while, um, which again Claire will perform for us? I'm a musicologist as well as a composer and I specialise in, in 17th century music from England, so I wanted to pay tribute to that. Um, so I chose the genre of Divisions on the Ground, which is an improvisatory genre from 17th century England, and I used that as inspiration. So just as you heard in the Bieber, um, I take a four-note ground, the four-note ground that Bieber had, and just fill it in with every semitone. And that's a chromatic descending fourth that was called the Passus Juriusculus in the Baroque period. Um, so that was an international symbol for um, weeping and sorrow. Um, so just as in iconography of, of saints in the, in the Baroque era, people would have understood what this figure meant. So in the way that a particular symbol in a painting, an image in a painting, has a resonance for the viewer. Exactly. The same thing in the music. Exactly, in the music. Um, so I use that as a, as, the, as a starting point. So you'll see that this motive comes up again and again in every section, while the notes themselves get smaller and smaller and smaller, exactly the same as in the 17th century um, divisions on the ground. Before we, we listen to that, um, do you ever get to play traditional music anymore? I do. I've just recently um, started uh, as a lecturer in Matter Day Institute and I am heading up the traditional group. So um, my parents are very glad that I'm coming back to traditional music again. <laughs> but uh, they, they love the classical music too and they enjoy coming to all my concerts. I think you had an involvement as well in uh, the Encyclopedia of Music in, in Ireland. That's right. I wrote a number of articles on 17th century organists um, for the for EMER, as we call it, Encyclopedia of Music in Ireland. Uh, my PhD was on a Jesuit from Drumcondra, where I now work, um, called William Bath, who in the 16th century published the first music textbook in, Eng in English. And in it, he invented uh, or reformed a method of sight singing. And that became, method became standard in England in the 17th century before moving across to America. So my PhD studied the transmission from 16th century Drumcondra to present day America. And I, you, I think you're also interested in uh, choral music and, and you've been composing choral music as well. I am indeed. I'm, it's, it's a strong interest of mine. If you're around for the Cork Choral Festival, you'll hear two of my pieces being performed at the Fleischmann competition. It must be exciting to be at this stage of, of your career where you're, you're really beginning to write more and more. And I presume that it's like anything. The, the, the more you write, the more the doors open and the, the, the richer the landscape you encounter? Uh, well, I've always been very prolific. It's just the case that people are performing my work more. <laughs> what inspired uh, this piece? I mean, you've, you've, you've talked about some of the technique that we'd hear, uh, but, but where did the inspiration come from? Well, the inspiration came from the repertoire itself, um, from my knowledge of uh, divisions on the ground, and I just get a rush of excitement whenever... Um, the note values begin to get smaller and smaller and smaller and the tension <laughs> ratchets up as we rush to the end of the piece. Uh, Claire, would you, you might play the theme we should be listening out for in, in the piece bef bef before you, you play the entire piece. Sure. And then I can play the inversion where it ascends.
That's the basis then of of the whole piece. That's the basis of the whole piece. In every section, you'll hear either one or um, the first one or the second one or both at the same time. Uh, when Claire does a miraculously virtuosic um, <laughs> passage where both occur at the same time. And of course, you, you heard this performed for the first time last week. So this piece is brand new, very, very fresh indeed. Um, just heard for the first time last week and, uh, and I was just in awe of her, of her incredible virtuosity that she brings to it. OK, uh, let's hear Claire Duff perform Sean Doherty's Divisions. Thank you. 
Claire Duff performing Sean Doherty's new work Divisions, written especially for the Baroque violin and first performed as part of the Irish Composers Collective 2015 Strong Series season. For more information, see irishcomposerscollective.com. On next week's Arts Tonight, another chance to hear my interview with Harold Bloom, eminent American critic on Yeats, Heaney and a whole world of literature. Do join us then. Good night. <laughs>